Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, everyone, and man, do we have a lot of great news and things to cover on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. It's show season, meaning there are things like Dallas Safari Club, SHOT Show, Western Hunting and Shooting Exposition, and uh, Sheep Show, and Elk Foundation, Pheasants Forever. Everybody has their conventions in winter, but uh, they are so much fun. And I have returned just recently from a couple of them, the Dallas Safari Club Convention, and that was in Dallas, and I had a great time down there and met lots of fun folks. Oh, I said I would give a shout out to Rick and Bill, two gentlemen who came up to me, recognized my ugly mug and said hi, and I told them I'd give them a shout out here. So Rick and Bill, thanks for stopping me. I enjoyed sharing a few tales with you and everyone else who approached me in Dallas and shook my hand. I just really enjoyed that. I would say so many folks said, I'm sorry to bother you, but don't be sorry to bother me because it really makes me feel good to have folks come up and say that they appreciate what we do here. Makes my day, makes my month. <laughs> and this similar thing happened at the shot. So, so many good folks from around the world, really. I had gentlemen from Georgia, not the state, but the country of Georgia, stop and say hi, and South Africa and England. And it was just amazing. So, I, I'm just really floating high here, guys. I really appreciate all that. And I am going to take your advice and continue do, not only doing what I have been doing, but trying to be even better at it because it appears that I am actually providing some useful information. So if I'm helping you guys out with this stuff, that's what keeps me going. So thanks to everyone for stopping me. And if you haven't gone to any of these shows from any of these conservation organizations, I urge you to join up because that is us. It's our club, if you would. And you meet so many great people and, and you find opportunities for sharing hunts in different places. I got invited to all sorts of wonderful places and we're looking into getting some going. Oh, speaking of which, we have some hunts coming up in Africa. I'm going to be hunting with Imenhof Safari in early May 
for about 10 days. So if you're interested in something like that, get a hold of me and I will put you in touch with the good folks at Immenhof and you will be able to hunt at the same time I'm there so we can share some stories around the campfire. And then in uh, the latter half of May, I'm going to be down in South Africa in a really fun place I've hunted before with Crusader Safari. So if you are interested in either of those, uh, drop me a line, uh, ron at ronspomeroutdoors.com. And we'll put you in touch with the right people and tell you everything you need to know about going to Africa and having a good time with us. Now, let's get to some questions from our, our readers, especially our patrons. Mark is a patron and he says, well, Ron, I like the authority that a round nose bullet hits with. I generally don't shoot past 250 yards and I've always liked round noses. I guess I'm old school. Maybe you could do a show on how the round nose perform over Spitzer bullets. Yes, I know Spitzers are better ballistically, but I like the way the round nose hits. Thanks. Um, I'm going to check them out. And I wrote back to Mark and said, hey, I'd love to address that round nose versus Spitzer bullet issue, but I have no verifiable evidence to support it. Do you? What kind of proof do we have that the round nose hits harder? I've always felt observed and said that once a bullet strikes and deforms or expands, it hardly matters what that nose looked like initially. If the bullet stays inside, all of its energy is expanded. A lot of folks think that's important. I don't really, but if it's expanding equally, both bullets are staying inside. They both dump all of their energy and they both expand or mushroom. They pretty much both tear the same vital organs. So how can a tiny difference in the nose contour change all this? I'd love to see some definitive evidence. Back in the early 1970s, I loaded 105 grain round nose bullets in my six millimeter Remington. I might just ask this around nose versus spire point question on a f future podcast. This is it <laughs> because it's worth a wide discussion. So thanks, Mark, and good luck finding whatever bullets you need. And I want to put this out for everyone to weigh in on because I hear it a lot. Round nose bullets hit harder. Sometimes we'll also hear that flat nose bullets hit harder. And it seems to make sense initially if you look at, say, a round nose versus a sharp spire point. The impression is that that spire point is going to punch in like a needle and not do much damage, whereas that flat nose or rounded nose is going to have, well, it's like getting hit with a bigger fist. With the same energy in it, that bigger fist is going to be touching more tissue, and so it should do more damage. But then we get back to that expansion and mushrooming that I'm talking about. The instant that projectile lands, it begins to flatten out, expand, bend, whatever they end up doing, and you've got the same weight in the projectile. So why would the round nose hit harder, especially downrange? Because remember, aerodynamic efficiency plays a role in how much energy that bullet retains. So if you drove both these bullets, the flat nose and the spire point, at the same initial velocity, and they both weighed the same, because the flat nose wastes energy with to air drag, shoving air out of its right out of its way, it arrives on target carrying less energy than the spire point. And that's why I question that whole theory. And I have never found any sort of scientific evidence that proves that a flat point or a round nose hits harder, even if both bullets would land with the same energy. I just don't see it. So if anyone has some good solid evidence, boy, I'd sure like to entertain that one. Would be fun to know if there's some sort of 
proof that it happens. But man, right now I can't say that there is. Let's uh, see what Keith has to ask. Hey, Ron, I got another one for you. Large rifle magnum primers. They're impossible to find. Can I use large rifle primers in the 6.8 Western? And if so, what difference will I see between the two primers? So, well, I wrote back, Keith, you can interchange those. Some brands of large rifle primers project a flame that's almost as hot as some of the weaker magnum primers. That's really all there is to it. The uh, magnum primer is just a slightly hotter ignition when you're trying to ignite large quantities of slow-burning magnum powders. And the trick with, with reloading bullets is that the heavier your bullet, the slower you want your powder to be burning, the burning rate of the powder. The idea is that you start a little bit slowly and then you build up speed so you don't get a high pressure spike right there in the chamber and potentially blow up the barrel. So you get a slow burning powder, it starts that big heavy bullet down the barrel and picks up speed as it goes and then burns more slowly down the barrel. And uh, the problem is igniting that slow burning powder, especially if it's cold out. If you're hunting at below zero, you sometimes will have a little bit of an ignition problem unless you have a hot primer. So the Magnum primers should be hotter. So what I told Keith was, unless you're loading in that 6.8 Western, some really slow burning powders with a really heavy bullet, and that would be the 175 grain bullet. I believe that's the heaviest they've got out there now for the 270. Now there might be a 180 out there. But if you're loading those big heavy bullets, you're needing that slower burning powder like Retumbo, Retumbo or IMR 8133, uh, then you might be... Uh, a little bit worried about it, especially if it's in the colder temperatures. So if you cannot find your really hot primers or your magnum primers, you have to use a large primer. Just go with a more medium burning rate in your powders and follow the recipes in the hand loading manuals. They have those powders in there as well. You won't get your top end uh, velocity out of it, but it'd be pretty close. Joel, you should be safe there. Okay, now Patar. Patar says, do you recommend hunting with a 22 long rifle for small game like rabbits and or bigger game? Thanks for your previous supply, reply. So obviously, Patar and I have been uh, talking back and forth here on Patreon, and now he's asking about the 22 long rifle. And I replied that the 22 long rifle is perfect for head shooting squirrels, cottontails, hares, and birds where that's legal. And it can be effective on larger game, but it's not recommended or even legal in most jurisdictions. Now, I imagine Patar is from uh, a European country, and I don't know what the regulations might be where he's from. But anyone who's considering a 22 long rifle, someone new to this whole program, needs to know that this is a rimfire cartridge with very low pressures in it. So you cannot uh, throw your bullets very quickly with those. Roughly 1,000 to 1,300 feet per second with most 22 long rifle loads. And that's great for head shooting small game or body shooting small game, although I try not to body shoot it because obviously I'm taking small game for the meat. So if I shoot it in the head, then I've saved all my meat. And then it's used by poachers for taking deer pretty famously or infamously. 
And that means a headshot, you know, they put it right in the ear and make it right into the brain and dead right there. But you have to be pretty darn close because of the rainbow trajectory of a 22 long rifle. But the bullet can certainly do it. And it also works on hard shots and sometimes even lung shots from what I hear on whitetails. And I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, there's plenty of big animals that have been killed with a 22 long rifle. In fact, I've heard of polar bears being uh, killed with them, moose pretty much everything, even an elephant reportedly from Africa once, kind of a fluke, but they hit just the right artery with it. So the 22 long rifle can kill the biggest stuff. It's just not anywhere close to appropriate or recommended. So there is your answer, Patar. Um, now let's go to, let's see some questions here that Betsy pulled up for me. I don't want to answer all of the Patreon questions today because I've got some more of these podcasts to do later. Let's see, Chris, regarding a video I did recently on all cartridges are the same, meaning that the trajectories are the same. And that, if I remember right, I started with a 243 Winchester and went up to a 300 Win Mag or something and showed how most of them will shoot within an inch or two of the same drops and wind deflections out to 300 yards, which for most of us is a long, probably the longest shot we will take at game. And we spend so much time worrying about whether we should get a 270 or a seven rem mag, thinking there's a huge difference between it. When I showed with all my numbers in that episode, they're awfully, awfully close to the same basic trajectories. So let's see what Chris has to say about that. Ron, do you find that in the hunting community, there are more shooters than there are hunters today? I'm older and I grew up in a time when nobody would consider a shot at game at more than 300 yards. Now with rangefinders and huge magnification optics, uh, people feel like a 600, 700, and 800 yard shot is ethical. <laughs> Maybe if the person spent every weekend practicing at those distances, it could be ethical. However, is stalking a lost skill? I would rather stalk closing the distance on an animal to within 200 yards or less, and then I'd know with almost 100% certainty that the animal would be meat in the freezer. With extended range shots, even in the best conditions, with light winds and with all the current technology, there's a much higher chance of missing or wounding an animal than to have a clean ethical kill. Well, Chris, I can't argue with you. I think you're spot on, and I think most of us know that. Um, but it's going to be an argument for pretty much forever. Obviously, you're right that right now the rage is that. We do have the technology that lets us push the envelope. But let's be honest, in the good old days, we weren't all limiting our shots to 200 yards or even 300 yards. You read some of the old magazine articles from the 40s and 50s and folks like Jack O'Connor were shooting stuff at 600 yards sometimes. And they didn't have rangefinders. So we weren't always just the uh, Daniel Boones, shall we say, stalking within real surefire range. But it's always a great idea to do that. And something you said here, I think, really points out the bottom line, which is knowing that you are within your 100% sure hit distance. When you know your rifle, your bullet, your trajectory, your wind deflections so well that you can every time hit that target um, without a doubt, that's your maximum range. And I will then throw in one more caveat, which is the flight time of the bullet. I've said it before, and I will say it many, many more times. That 
lag time between your brain saying pull the trigger and everything happening to get the bullet down to where the animal is becomes longer and longer with distance, obviously, and past about 500 yards, maybe 600. Just the flight of the bullet alone is long enough for the animal to move enough to make a good shot into a bad one. That's something that even the best shooter cannot compensate for. So you have to also understand what your animal is doing, whether it's likely to move or not. Just a lot more risk with distance, as you said. All right, let's go to Ryan. Ryan, he's on the same topic, uh, the same cartridge video. Ron, I really appreciate your scientific angle that you applied to all of those cartridges. I would like to know how much does rain affect the flight of a bullet? Yeah, you guessed it. I live in a rainy place, Washington State. Most of my shots are pretty close because of all that rain and fog. But just a thought, this is kind of a crazy question, but I have realized that uncommon or calibers that are no longer being produced by manufacturers, why are they always going to the plastic tips on their bullets? I've just acquired a 348 Winchester. I have a couple of Grendels. I have a 6.8 SPC. And as these calibers are being produced less and less by manufacturers, the only bullets I'm seeing are plastic tipped and not standard bullets. Well, gee, Ryan, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a 348 Winchester that had a plastic tip. They're usually a lead-exposed, old-fashioned, shall we say, tip bullet. But I do know why so many manufacturers are going to these polymer or plastic tips. The initial reason was to prevent uh, nose battering of classic exposed lead tips. If you ever hunted a lot with those in magazine rifles, when the rifle recoils and a cartridge is in the magazine, unless it's specially designed to grip them by the shoulder, they can rattle back and forth. So they end up slamming against the front of that metal magazine box and it dents or deforms the lead nose. And hunters traditionally didn't much appreciate that. So they uh, came out with some things in the 50s. And so with copper tips, uh, there was the ballistic silver tip, which actually had a silver cap over the exposed lead from Winchester. And later that went to aluminum because it was more cost effective. There was the bronze point, I believe, from uh, Remington. And then they went to these polymer tips when they discovered that it was an inexpensive way to do roughly the same thing. And there were a few of them around way back when, but they were revived most successfully by um, Nosler with their ballistic tip. And they also were smart enough <laughs> to say ballistic tip because they realized there was a small advantage to a sharper pointed bullet for less wind uh, resistant, less drag to the bullet. So they improved the ballistics coefficient of the bullet. So those are two of the reasons why they put these plastic tips on bullets. Uh, you prevent the battering, you improve the BC with a sharply pointed tip like that. Uh, but the other reason is sales. It's simply sales appeal. They've So many people see these plastic tip bullets as new and modern, and there must be something magical and wonderful about them, right? So put them on all your bullets. And now you'll find them on hollow point bullets, on lead core bullets, on all copper bullets. They're pretty much any kind of a bullet design out there can and often does have a polymer tip, even some round nose. They'll put a polymer round nose tip on it instead of lead. It doesn't really have a ballistics advantage, but it does have that anti-battering advantage to it. And it looks like the latest and greatest modern plastic tip. That's my take on it anyway. All right. Here is someone naming themselves Pure Truth. Would you mind? I wouldn't mind seeing this same video with the new cartridges. 
Oh, he must be referencing that same video about the uh, the similar trajectories. He wants to see that same video addressing the 300 PRC, 7 PRC, 28 Nosler, and 338 Lapua Magnum. Wow. I think that would be awesome to see. Well, pure truth. Thanks for suggesting that. And maybe we will keep this in the files and maybe we'll do one on that one. I don't think you're going to see a heck of a lot of difference, but boy, I'll tell you this. You will see fairly significant distance, especially beyond 300 yards with the 28 Nosler um, and the 338 Lapua Magnum. You're getting some really high ballistic coefficient bullets that are going to start to make a difference. But yeah, that's worth doing. We'll, and we'll probably extend the range too. Several other people I've noticed have commented on this and said, yeah, to 300 yards, I was right. There, there's not a lot of difference in the trajectory, the drops and the deflections. But boy, once you start getting beyond 300 yards, it can really add up. So maybe we'll do that fairly soon on another video. Good idea. Daniel. Daniel says, I know it's an election year, but I didn't expect to see numbers skewed on RSO too. <laughs> Come on, Ron. That's a small piece of the entire picture. Oh, he's also referring to this trajectory video. For instance, what about the opposite end of the spectrum? Adding the three inches of drop deviation in the inverse direction, which would change the entire representation for these cartridges. You're losing me here, Daniel. Only counting the bottom three inches of drop from the zero point disregards a lot of information. Boy, Daniel, I don't know if I'm not understanding you or if you weren't understanding me. Maybe I'll touch on it really quickly. So what I did, Daniel, was I wanted to figure for a six-inch diameter target zone, which I like to use for my maximum point-blank range setting. That will easily encompass the vital heart-lungs area of any pronghorn, whitetail, mule deer, and elk and bigger animals, obviously. Um, if you can go to an 80-inch target, and really, if you can keep your bullets inside of 8 inches, you're hitting the vitals too. In fact, you could go to 10 inches, and you'd still be in the vitals. But then you're not taking into account any deviations from precision from you shooting, or say you've got a 1 MOA rifle, and you know, at 300 yards, 1 MOA is 3 inches, so now you're suddenly 3 inches higher or 3 inches lower than your widest expected, and gets to be a little bit problematic to keep it inside of that vital zone. So I go to 6 inches. That way you've got some fudge factor. Okay, that's the first part. The next point is once you've done that, you've got your 6-inch diameter circle, and you uh, get your maximum point blank range by aiming for the center and then zeroing at 100 yards so that you don't go any higher at any distance than three inches. And that usually happens around 150 yards. So you'll be three inches above your point of aim at 150. And then your bullet drops, 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 drops further out there. Actually, it doesn't really drop below your aim point until 250 yards with most of them. And then it drops three inches below your target at your maximum point blank range. And it's usually somewhere out there around 270 to 310 yards or so. With all of these, um, obviously, you can extend it with your super magnums. So I'm not quite sure what you're saying about this bottom three inches of drop from the zero disregarding a lot of information. You're certainly going to drop more than three inches. But once you've done that, you've kind of exceeded your maximum point blank range. and You could easily miss your animal by shooting low. So if I didn't understand you right, Daniel, write back and try to be a little more uh, concise and clear in what you're asking me or trying to straighten me out on here because I'm not quite following it. Go to Rich. To Mr. Spomer and his listeners, be aware, some, if not most, brake cleaners are using water. 
Yes, water as inert ingredient. Takes up the space and costs little to nothing. Even the best brake cleaners that do not package water can cause moisture by pulling atmospheric water and condensing it inside the bore. Probably more so in the Pacific Northwest versus Arizona. So Rich is responding to some answer I gave about cleaning your rifle bore with brake cleaner. That's often done and recommended by many um, carb cleaner, same similar deal. You can use that. But Rich, what I always tell people is to, after you've done cleaning your bore or any metal parts of your rifle, you should lightly oil everything. So even if your brake cleaner or whatever solvent you use happens to attract moisture into your bore, as soon as you're getting, you're done cleaning, you've got that bore clean, you run an oily patch down it maybe even a couple of times. You want an oily film on all the metallic surfaces to prevent rust. So it really shouldn't be a problem even if there are some. Uh, there are some solvents out there that have uh, ammonia in them, especially for taking copper out. And that really has, the ammonia salts really pull in water. So you want to definitely get all of that flushed out of your bore and then oil lightly, and you're ready to go. Now, some will say, oh, you should never oil your bore because if you shoot a bullet down that bore, it's going to raise your pressures and explode the barrel. No, if you put heavy grease in your bore, you might do that. But light oil is not an issue. And if you want to be perfectly safe about it, just run a dry patch down the bore before you shoot again. But I have many, many, many times, probably most times, fired a cleaned barrel that has a light oil inside the bore and not had any issues with excessive pressure. That very, very light oil is not going to raise your pressures. All right. Good point, though. We want to keep everybody safe here. Chad. Hey, Ron, I'm a big fan. I ran across a cartridge recently that really caught my eye. It's the 350 Remington Magnum. I was pretty impressed with this cartridge, especially considering that it was developed as uh, an early version short Magnum. That's true. Back in 1964, I think it was. Why didn't it get more popular? And secondly, why not bring it back? I'd love to see this bullet lose the belt and get some new powder options and about a 190 grain CX bullet in it. <laughs> okay. Well, a good idea, Chad. Actually, Remington did try to bring it back. It and its cousin, the 6.5 Rem Mag, both of them on the same case. So what they did was they took the 375 H and H belted magnum case or the 300 H and H case, same thing, but they shortened it like happened with all of our short magnums at the turn of the century, around 2001, short and fat. And it was stuck in a I think it was called the 600 Mohawk, uh, a short little carbine style rifle. And I think that was part of the reason it didn't really take off. The rifles had short barrels, 18, 18 and a half inches. Later, they went with a 20-inch barrel to try to keep it going. But I think the combination of a short barrel didn't maximize the ballistic potential of the bullets. And then there was quite a bit of recoil, many people felt, with especially the 350 version. Um, and it just became a bit of a cult favorite with elk hunters in some quarters. But it was never a, a super duper seller, so it kind of faded away. And then about oh, in the 1990s, probably the mid to late 1990s, I think it was, Remington came out with an upgraded version of that rifle with a bit longer barrel and chambered it for both of those, hoping to revive them. But once again, it really never took off. And these days, I don't know, we don't really have a, a 350 
a 35 caliber that would probably match it. I'm thinking 325 WSM is close, but that's not 35. It's 32. Um, 35 Whalen. What else is out there, guys, in the 35? 35s are just not all that popular in this country. Uh, even with elk hunters, the 338s seem to, to handle it. But it is a great little cartridge. If anyone wants to mess around with it, you'll have to get somebody perhaps to rechamber something for you or rebarrel a rifle, a short action. But it, it had a lot of potential. I'm just not real up on the numbers it was producing or what it would produce now. But <laughs> Chad, I think you're onto something here. If you build one of these, uh, work with it for a bit and let us know how it performs. What sort of velocities are you getting with those bullets? What powders are working well for you and all the rest of it could be a hot little project. All right, someone naming themselves Midwest says, Hello, Ron. I'm a longtime viewer of your podcast. I was wondering if you could tell me what a Winchester model eight, 1982 chambered in 44 Magnum would be good for taking out in the woods. So the 82 was the 1882 Winchester lever action rifle for pistol cartridges, the short short little action thing. And these days they loaded up the modern versions. They chamber it for not just the old pistol cartridges, but the new ones like the 357 Magnum and the 44 Magnum. And this 44 Remington Magnum that Midwest is asking about is a darn good woods cartridge for whitetail. Um, of course, you could use it for mule deer or anything else of that size in the woods, but that's where it is shining because that's not exactly a long range cartridge. Everybody, I think, knows a 44 Magnum is a pretty powerful revolver cartridge. Clint Eastwood, notwithstanding, it is not the most powerful handgun cartridge in the world, but it's right up there. But when you stick it in a rifle barrel, you are increasing its velocity by about 300 feet per second with most bullets. So 250, 265 grain bullets up to about 300 grain bullets, pushing them around 1400 to perhaps 1700 feet per second. You are gonna be having a pretty effective long, for the woods, long reach projectile there that's gonna put a big hole in it, it's a 44. Uh, you're not gonna retain huge amounts of energy past about 150 yards. It's gonna start dropping a lot, but we're talking 30-30 uh, performance out there, I think. I think you're gonna do pretty darn well with it. So I would say, yeah, consider it for whitetail and mule deer in the woods or anything else you're hunting in the woods, but I don't know about elk. Obviously you put the right bullet in the right place, you're gonna get one, but it certainly wouldn't be my first choice. So there you go. Um, I don't know that you'd want to use it out in the open because you'd be just giving up too much range with that one. And now, before we get to our questions that the team has pulled up for me, I do want to point out that we have all of our videos available at RSOTV. It's a subscription service. Go to ronspomeroutdoors.com, our website, and you'll see it in there. You can sign up for that. We have all of the YouTube videos on there, but also some videos that we can't necessarily put on YouTube that are more involved with hand loading and uh, rifle repair and a few things like that, more on the gunsmithing side a little bit, some hunting videos. But we're also starting to do some more personalized stuff, sort of the behind-the-scenes look at what we do around here. And you may see some funny stuff in there as I'm out doing things, and I try to cut those out of the finished production so I don't look like an idiot, but on these, we'll throw them in there and let you know how I sometimes stumble. <laughs> but you can see what goes on around here out in the farm. Betsy and I live off the grid, and there are a lot of stuff that we'll be covering will be a day in the life of shoveling snow so we can get to the range. 
<laughs> before we can even begin shooting. You never know what we're going to come up with. We're going to give it a try, see if anyone likes it. But I'd uh, sure appreciate it if you'd watch a few of those and get back to me and let me know what you think. And also what more in-depth stories you would like to see on RSOTV. You know, we can put a lot more time and effort into some videos on there where we don't have to worry so much about towing the company line here on the social media stations. So give it a try. We'd love to have you. And thanks to everyone who's been watching all along. It uh, gives us a incentive to continue and improve that channel. All right, Joshua from Texas. Ron, what do you think of the 6.5 BC? Thanks for all your great content. Josh, well, Josh, first of all, I think you've got a typo in here, but I'm not sure which 6.5 BC you mean. Do you mean the PRC or are you thinking of the Creedmoor, which would be CM? So I'm not exactly sure what you mean by this 6.5 BC. There is a 6.5 Weatherby. Gosh, I'm not sure. At any rate, I'm going to think you're talking about the PRC, and I will throw the ever-popular and hated 6.5 Creedmoor in here as a comparison. So I think the 6.5 Creedmoor, uh, which drives a 140-ish grain weight bullet about a th 2,750 feet per second, more or less. Um, and that one compares to the 6.5 PRC, which is a fatter, wider, larger cartridge, that adds about 200 feet per second of velocity to the same bullet. That makes the 6.5 PRC about the ballistic equivalent of the old 270 Winchester, which means it should be deadly on pretty much all North American game and most of African game because the 270 Winchester has been proven again and again to shoot that well. Now, the Winchester will shoot a 150-grain bullet, usually at the top end, but this PRC, because of its fast twist rate, can go with a 156 or so grain bullet. So you've got some potential there to maybe even put more energy down range on your targets. And your trajectories are going to be about as flat, maybe a little bit better with your wind deflections out of that 6.5 because you've got a narrower bullet and they're a little bit longer and you can have a higher BC. So I think that's, uh, I'm considering that the ultimate hunting 6.5 right now. If you like short actions, you don't have to have the long action. You get your velocity. Great. The Creedmoor is a much milder cartridge, less recoil, burning up less powder. So it's a little more cost effective, especially if you're hand loading. There are a lot of ammunition brands out there that have a 6.5 Creedmoor. I would say pretty much anyone who loads ammunition and sells it is making a 6.5 Creedmoor, probably not that many with the PRC. So you're going to have a lot of choices in ammo. And the other thing with the PRC is that it's been proven it's such an effective long-range precision shooting cartridge, so it's really, really accurate. The uh, PRC is going to be used less for that long-range precision target shooting simply because most target shooters don't want to burn that much powder and then burn their barrels out that much quicker. So the PRC is more of a hunting cartridge, whereas the Creedmoor is your target cartridge. But boy, plenty of people use it for hunting, and it's been proven quite dependable and successful on deer-sized game. I realize a lot of guys use it on elk quite nicely, handily, and effectively. Some even on moose, and they will defend it to the end. But a lot of others think it's just not quite up to the horsepower needed for those animals. And I want to let the individuals decide that because, as we all know... <sighs> Big stuff like that's been taken with all kinds of smaller cartridges, just not generally recommended. All right, let's try Chris from the UK. 
Always a big fan of your podcast, Ron. Really appreciate that, Chris. Why is it the poor 22 Winchester Magnum Rimfire never gets much attention from anyone? I think it's a great 22, and it nicely bridges the gap between the 22 long rifle and my trusty 300 Win Mag. Boy, you're making a pretty big jump there, Chris. Maybe people go for that little extra in a varmint round and go with the 22 Hornet instead. Also, I'm eagerly awaiting a new Mauser M18. Any thoughts before it arrives? Well, Chris, I I don't need to tell you about that M18. I think you're going to find it. It uh, You've already chosen it, so I don't want to run it down for any reason, and I really don't have a reason to. I have used it quite successfully in a 308 Winchester, if you can believe that, and have taken some deer with it, no problems. I noticed there was a little bit of a hitch in the uh, bolt for some reason. I've forgotten exactly what I determined was making that, but all it takes is knowing it's there and pushing on through it was no problem. And it was quite accurate. Nicely balanced little rifle, too. I think you're going to enjoy the heck out of it. Now, going back to your 22 uh, Magnum, the 22 Magnum Rimfire is a step up, a big step up from the 22 Long Rifle, but it's, boy, it's got a long way to go to fill the gap there out to your 300 win mag. I'm not sure what you're targeting with it, but you're on the right track here by mentioning that 22 Hornet. That one is faster because it's a center fire and you can increase the pressures significantly. But if you want to bridge the gap between the rim fire and something as big and powerful as a 300 Win Mag in a 22, I think you need to step up to something like a 223 or better yet, a 22-250 Remington. And now, just announced at the SHOT Show last week, is finally a Sammy-approved 22 Creedmoor. We're going to be covering that a fair bit here on Ron Spomer Outdoors' regular channel. This is, I think, going to be the new 22-250 Remington. It's going to set the benchmark for the fastest, flattest shooting, most powerful, and easily obtained and usable and accurate 22 uh, centerfire cartridge for hunting the usual varmints and predators like coyotes, but also going to be effective on deer. I know a lot of people say never use a 22 of any kind on deer, but Plenty of people use the 223 Remington, the 222 Remington, the 22250, and all the rest with great success. Well, the 22 Creedmoor has more velocity than those, so there's more energy in the bullet, but it also will shoot heavier bullets. Faster twist rate, one in eight, it will stabilize an 80 grain bullet perfectly. So that is going to make it pretty darn effective on uh, pronghorn and whitetail and mule deer. So stay tuned for those. But yeah, the uh, 22 Win Mag doesn't get much attention because it's a little bit more powerful than the 22 Long Rifle, but not powerful enough or even legal in most jurisdictions for big game. And I think that's its biggest problem. Just not that many applications for it. If you want to hunt small game for meat, you don't want the tearing you get from that faster bullet out of the, the Win Mag. So you'll stick with your 22 long rifle. If you want to reach out a little bit further, you're not quite getting the range you'd like to get that you would get when you step up to the 22 Hornet or any other centerfire. So it kind of falls in between. It's not really adequate for big game. It's a little too much for small game. So what's it good for? Now, those of you who love it and use it successfully, <laughs> write in and let me know what it's good for. And I'll be happy to share that. But I've just found it to be something I can easily overlook just because of that. Just can't figure out what I want to use it for. 
All right, Walt from Tampa, Florida. I'm curious if you have any experience with the Hornady lever revolution and what you think of their performance compared to traditional cartridges. I have both a 3030 and a 4570, and I have some, but I've not used them in a hunt yet. Here in Florida, I haven't had a need for shots over 150 yards, and I love the Marlin 336 and the 1895. Those are both lever-action rifle. Okay. I think that the Hornady Lever Revolution ammunition does just what they say it does. And if you guys aren't familiar with it, what it is is a sharply tipped bullet that is a soft rubber. So you don't have the issues of a sharp tip on a bullet riding in a tubular magazine like you're going to see on a 336 Marlin Lever Action or a Henry or the Model 94 Winchester. You've got those bullets riding one behind the other with a tip of one bullet pushing against the primer of the cartridge in front of it. And that potentially could get it to act like a firing pin under recoil. And there's plenty of argument about it never happening, but some say it can happen, et cetera, et cetera. The point is that all the manufacturers of 3030s will put a round nose or a flat point on there so they don't have even the potential of that happening. Well, that costs you ballistics efficiency. You've got more drag in a round nose and a flat point bullet. So Hornady came up with the idea of putting this rubbery tip on there. It will flex and give and not be hard enough to act like a firing pin. So they can streamline those bullets a little bit and get your BCs a little bit higher. It improves it slightly. It's not a huge improvement in your BC, but it gives you a little more reach, a little flatter trajectory, a little less deflection in the wind, and a little more energy when your bullet gets there. It's not a huge difference, but it's enough that it makes it... 150 to 200 yard gun might be now performing out to 175 to 200 to 250 yards max. You'll have to look at the numbers and see what your rifle does with those. But I think they are definitely worth considering. I have used them in the past on game, found them to be just as reliable and effective um, in terminal performance as the other bullets. So why not improve your ballistics coefficient? I can stand behind those revolution bullets. All right, Jeffrey, Pennsylvania. I have received a few messages from you after a comment I made on a few of your videos. The messages said that I was a, a winner. I was to text you at 619-678, blah, 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 and I would receive a message as to what I had won. Well, that phone number turned out to be from Chula Vista, California. <laughs> I know that wouldn't be you. Doing it in secret? Hmm, it would be announced on your site if you were doing it. So please be aware that someone is spamming you on YouTube. I love your channel and your content. I hate these people who do this spamming to anyone. My apologize for those trying to ruin your good name. I have a snapshot of the message if you need it. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Jeffrey, thank you for noticing that and sending out the warning. I've gotten many, many of these because these yahoos are out there trying this almost every time somebody comments. It's the latest and greatest place to buy your ammunition or you've won a prize and it's all nonsense. It's all a scam. Don't pay any attention to it. If we ever do contests or give something away, you'll see my lips moving <laughs> and we will make darn sure you know it is us offering it. But if someone responds to you on a comment or as an after comment in one of my videos, that's all nonsense. I am not doing that. All right. Oh, well, there's another Jeff. Only this one's not from Pennsylvania. This one is from Wyoming. Little windier on general in Wyoming. This Jeff asks about 32 handgun cartridges. Hmm. 
What are all of the 32 handgun cartridges and how are they interchangeable with the 32 Smith & Wesson? Oh boy, Jeff, you're opening a real can of worms here because there is a confusing mess in that category. 32 handgun cartridges. There's the 32 Auto, which was from Browning way back in the late 1800s. Pretty weak little thing. There's a 32 Smith & Wesson. There's a 32 Smith & Wesson Long. There's a 32 Colt Police that I think is interchangeable with the 32 Smith & Wesson Long. But there's a Smith & Wesson Short. There's a 32 Colt Long and Short. There's a 32 H&R Mag. There's the new 327 um, Federal. Oh my gosh, there's so many of them. I'm not going to begin to pretend to tell you which ones are going to interchange. Probably, I, I'm pretty sure the Smith & Wesson Long and the Colt Police are the same thing. One just uses a flat nose bullet or something or a different weight bullet. The problem with these back in the old days, the, they would make real similar cartridges and maybe just change the the shape of the bullet and give it a different name. Or they would do an inside lubricated bullet versus an outside lubricated bullet and change the name. Sometimes one of them would shoot a 0.311 inch diameter bullet and the other one would shoot a 0.3112 inch diameter bullet. And it just gets crazy. I would recommend that you just stick with cartridges. That head stamp says the same thing that's on the barrel of your gun especially because so many of these handguns are old and you get some modern load in there that looks about the same and sounds kind of the same, but maybe it will and won't. And you try it, you might be in big trouble. <laughs> it's just not worth fooling around with. That's the best I can tell you on the 32s. I would definitely suggest anyone interested in it to do some deep, deep research and don't take chances. Let's see what Jeremiah has to say. What helpful info is there for shotgun slugs and the different styles of slugs? Their weights, energy they put out at range. Are there any slugs shorter than two inches? So many questions. I just thought the topic could use some more exploring. You know, Jeremiah, I have gotten that from a few other folks. And we said some time ago that we were going to do a complete Ron Spomer Outdoors video on the slug stuff. We still have to do that. But I was reminded at the SHOT Show, I bumped into the uh, duplex booth where they've got some of what I consider the best shotgun slug ammo out there. They have a steelhead and a hexolite, uh, an expanding steel um, bullet, really, a slug that's encased in uh, enough polymer or plastic or nylon or something that the bullet diameter is not the same as your bore but the plastic is so that's what's touching your rifling or your smooth bore either one and then the bullet expands by having around its front frontal flat surface are are slices so that when it strikes a target the individual slices peel open like sort of like a Barnes X bullet, but there are a whole bunch of them. And it makes a heck of an expansion that is just deadly. The solid version called the steelhead is obviously just going to be a 0.729 inch diameter, but that's a big hole all by itself. And man, do those penetrate. We did a video. I don't know if it's still up. You might want to search Ron Spomer Outdoors for the duplex Sl shotgun slugs. I think I would have called them duplex. D, D, there's two D's in the word. D, T, U, L, P plex, D, plex, duplex, P, L, E, K, S, I think. Maybe it's an XS, can't remember. But it's worth looking at because we penetrated milk jugs full of water. I don't remember how many in that slug 
kept going. And on one of them, I remember you could see it spinning in the dirt beyond the last jug. It was all pretty impressive stuff. So there are a wide variety of slugs out there. You've got your full diameter slugs. You've got your waste wasp wasted slugs. The ones I just mentioned, the duplex. You've got um, round nosed ones and flat nosed ones, and just all kinds of them. So we we need to round a bunch of them up and do a pretty long video on that for it. So. Good idea. Thanks for suggesting it, Jeremiah. I do not know if there are any slugs in a shell that's shorter than two inches. I assume when you say slugs shorter than two inches, you mean the entire shell. Generally, you have a two and three quarter inch and then a three inch. There may be some older ones that were at two, but I kind of doubt it. All right. Ryan from Michigan. Hi, Ron. Today is the first day that Michiganders can apply for a drawing for a bear season in the fall. I have an Ishapur rifle. An Ishapur rifle, that's a new one on me. Oh, that's the Indian Army's version of the Lee Enfield rifle. Well, I didn't know that. Good to know. And it's chambered 308 Winchester. Huh. There is no easy or inexpensive way to mount a scope on this rifle, but the iron sights are adjustable to 800 meters. I don't know if you can see anything at 800 meters. If I had to guess, the sights are probably calibrated to a 150 grain FMJ load. But for bear, I would prefer to use something heavier. The round and flat-nosed 220-grain 30-caliber bullets are short enough to stabilize in a 1-12 and 12 twist barrel. But if I use them, the sighting distance will not be accurate. I wouldn't think so. I anticipate that there may be opportunities for longer shots in the mountainous areas of the upper peninsula of Michigan. I don't know about that. It's pretty forested up there. Should I stick with what I have, or should I invest in a new rifle that can easily mount a scope and in a magnum cartridge? All of this is assuming I get picked in the lottery for the bear season, of course. Thanks, Ron. You do great work. Well, thank you, Ryan. Ryan, um, you know, I don't want to tell you you have to buy a new rifle. Obviously, a 308 Winchester can handle a black bear. I've taken plenty of them with 3030s and even 243s. I don't think you need a 220-grain bullet to do it. A good 150-grain should be more than adequate. So I wouldn't even fool around or worry about the 220 grain. I don't think you'd find any loads in a 308 with that bullet anyway. They generally stop after about 180 grains. They just don't have enough horsepower in that powder column to push those bigger, heavier bullets. So you would really be handicapping yourself on any kind of long range stuff. So give it up. Go for a 150 grain, maybe 165 grain bullet and go for a, if you want, you can get any of the controlled round, uh, controlled bullets with uh, bonded lead cores or a partition style or just go with a barnes x or a cutting edge or a hammer bullet the copper bullets are working so well get an expanding copper bullet in those lighter weights like 150 and you should be fine and uh yeah i think that's what i would recommend you do and good luck on drawing the tag and getting your bear and that looks like the end of our question. So, wow. Once again, I want to thank everybody, Chris, Joshua, Walt, Jeffrey, Jeff, Jeff, Jeremiah, Ryan, everybody for writing in. All of our patrons, of course, we always really appreciate the help you guys give us. If anyone wants to join us on Patreon, just go to patreon.com, Ron Spomer Outdoors. You can become a member and help support all of these broadcasts that we're doing. And once again, thanks to everyone who flagged me down at the shows. <laughs> you really made my week. I really appreciate it. And you have given me the kind of incentive I need to continue these broadcasts and try to make them better. We've got some exciting things coming up, including a new freedom bell that I'm really excited about. We'll see you next time on Honest and Shoot Straight.